Hey, Church Home, welcome back to another installment of Ask Me Anything. We are here with the man I affectionately call the good doctor. He is, uh, I think, unprecedented. I love you, Dr. Jamar Tisby, Likewise. and our church loves you. Thank you so much um, for collaborating with us uh, and being a friend of mine. I admire you, I love you, and I am going to ask you anything. I'm ready. Are you it's ready? It's going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, actually, you are ready. <laughs> you are very, very ready. Um, okay, let's let's start off with uh, a, a big swing, and that is um, people say in the church, ooh, what an intro, people say in the church, um, <laughs> racism, justice, isn't that kind of a social construct, social justice? That's not really biblical. Hey, pastor, can you stick to the gospel? Stick to the scriptures and let's not get into the uh, social justice yeah. stuff. I mean, I just I like seriously. It, it, seriously, it's, it's, it's a great way to start. Seriously, it is a hard objection to comprehend. Mm. It is. It is it a is. hard. First of all, you may not know this. I've been black all my life, <laughs> so, so so like these issues of racism are real. My uncle couldn't be a pilot in the Air Force. Because he was black, so he ended up a mechanic. But for his entire life, he had dreamed of being a pilot. My grandfather got run out of Shreveport, Louisiana, because he was making too much money running moonshine, which you had to have this alternate income because of poverty. And he was threatening uh, white moonshiners, and they um, got my grandfather from his <laughs> above market job and said, don't go home, they're waiting for you. Takes off and has to leave the state, right? So I grew up with that wow. in my history and heritage, let alone my own experiences of being racially profiled and frisked by the cops and all of that stuff. So, so like, you know, from an embodied perspective, that question or that objection about isn't this social, it makes zero sense to me. It's right? outrageous. It's outrageous. It's absurd. Yep. It's absolutely absurd. And I don't mean to insult anybody, but like this is the lived reality for so, so, so many people, right? Sure. So the, the very question is frustrating because, because we spend so much time trying to unpack and justify why we're concerned about the welfare of our neighbors. Let's put it in biblical terms, right? right? Like, 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 like it, 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 we are one body. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. So what's the objection? And what it comes from historically is, is there's always been this bifurcation between the material and the spiritual in Western white evangelical Christianity. It goes all the way back to a, a, a historical event I often reference in 1667, Virginia Assembly, white Anglican men say baptism will not emancipate an enslaved African indigenous person or mixed race person. What are they doing there? They are separating body and soul. They're saying we can enslave your body, but you're free in Christ. And they don't see the integration of those things. That's been carried forward right. to the present day such that when we talk about the physical, material, lived realities and concerns of people, we said, oh, that's separate from the gospel. That's separate from what's spiritual. And that's, that was never God's intention as I understand the Bible and Jesus' teaching. And to not care for one another or care for our own body and just ignore that, it's like, well, then the hospital should be eliminated, dentistry, right. like if you're not gonna care for the body, 
um, then you got to take that theology, that philosophy, all the way to the nth degree. But of course, we know that the gospel informs us in a very practical social construct. In fact, uh, to, to, to serve Jesus is to live well, and to live well is only to love well. That's so right. loving your neighbor is implicit to the fabric of the gospel, correct? But it's always been selective, right? Like, like, like people see. understand, people get like, I gotta take care of folks' material concerns. That's why we have things called like mercy ministry, right? That's, yeah. you know, that's, what, that's, that's, that's why we give to people and, and all of that stuff. They understand that they'll even be advocates and activists on certain, certain political issues. But when it comes to race, that's where the division is because the sad reality is, especially in the United States, the church has been the vehicle for so much racism. It's, it, it has been the carrier of this wicked practice, right? And so the, the, the habit has become, we've even formed theologies around separating the spiritual and the physical or the material, separating issues of, of Jesus and justice as if they're two different things. Right. And I don't like, know what justice is without Jesus. So like, picking apart Jesus and justice is taking his body apart. Right. His person, his character. Yeah. And, and it has to come whole or it can't come at all. Um, why? Why do we do this specifically in the area of race? To your point, it's like we are able to see and even institute into our theology the embodiment, the soul and the body. It, moment race is brought up, what is that? Mm -hmm. I think it's a couple of things. So for instance, that law about baptism was in response to concern from plantation owners that if these Christian missionaries evangelized and enslaved people believed the gospel, then they would get these wacky ideas about equality and liberty and like, you can't own me because I'm made in the image of God. And so the plantation owners were like, well, they won't be good laborers anymore if they become Christian. So they go to the political officials, the leaders of the community and say, hey, stop this. So the, so the negotiation was, okay, we'll let the missionaries continue to evangelize. We'll let them baptize, but we aren't gonna mess with your bottom line. So a lot of people say, slavery was America's original sin. What I often say is slavery was America's original symptom and the original sin is greed. When we talk about the, the construction of racial categories and hierarchies, when we talk about institutions like race-based chattel slavery, when we talk about the fact that it took a civil war to finally abolish slavery, why was it so resilient? Why does it continue to be so resilient? It's because there's money to be made. We don't like to talk about that we too much when it talks about, when we talk about race, it's all about feelings. How I feel about you, you know, do I use the N word or whatever it might be. But understand like race-based chattel slavery, which by the way, has indelibly shaped our nation and we haven't yet come to grips with that. What it fundamentally was, was an economically exploitative system wherein the owning class, the, the wealthy class increased their bottom line by not paying their laborers. That's what it was. And so greed is part of this. They're gonna be selective in terms of their policy. They're gonna be selective in terms of their greed because it's gonna cut into their comfort. It's gonna cut into their bottom line. But that's not the only thing. So over time, I think what has happened, we talk about segregation and it's like, oh, you know, people can't drink at the same water fountain. It's way deeper than that. What happens with segregation is 
white people in particular, come, it, it, grow up in these homogenous bubbles where even if people are different, they're, they're very similar, they're very familiar, right? And so my reality as a black person or someone else's reality as someone who's different, it is off their radar. Like, like, like no concept, for instance, often, 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 um, black parents refer to the talk. Um, and it's not the sex talk. <laughs> That's an important talk to have as well. But it's, it's the race talking specifically as applied to how to survive an encounter with the police. And that language is pointed, how to survive an encounter with the police, because at any point it could turn violent and even deadly, as we've seen so often on cell phone video and any, in, in other instances. But for so many white people, I'll never forget, it was a, 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 two couples at our church. Uh, the men were both elders. One was black, one was white. Um, they and their spouses all became friends. And as they're getting to know each other better and opening up about their lives, the black couple talks about the talk they have to have with their two black teenage sons as they're getting driver's licenses and driving. And the white couple is like, what are you talking about? The talk? We've never had to have that con conversation or even consideration with our son. That's just one example of how because of this racial separation, which is intentional, so much of it is intentional historically, we've n folks don't understand other people's realities. And then when I come and say, oh, we need to address this issue or fight racism this way, it's like, what are you talking about? That's never been my experience, so I don't see why you're pressing the point. Wow, that's a profound statement you just said at the end. That's not been my experience, so why are you pressing that point? And, and that, of course, by definition, is, is just selfish. Yeah. It's thinking only about yourself. Now, all of a sudden, we just we tripped onto a subject that is overt. How can you argue selfishness mm -hmm. is not inherently discussed and talked about in Scripture? Like, right. Jesus says, to find your life, you must lose it, lay it down, and come to be served. I came to serve. And so we, we are here sitting under the concept that, that following Jesus and living like Jesus is the answer. And so to separate the, the, yeah. the, 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 the ministry and mandate of Jesus from this system to oppress people based on race it's outrageous to think that they're not completely involved with one another. Can we talk about white supremacy? Please. You'll never have me on again. But <laughs> Quite the contrary. Here's the thing. When, when people hear that phrase, white supremacy, yeah. it's triggering, right? And, 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 and it's also that people immediately go to like the Ku Klux Klan or like the most extreme, extreme. forms yeah. of yeah. racists and racism. But yeah. the way white supremacy works out in practice, let's just even think about Christians, is that the, the understanding of Christianity and the priorities of a Christian are automatically assumed to default to white Western European. So when I was in seminary, all theology was just theology until it was black theology, until it was Latin American, until it was Asian American theology, right? Because what was white was seen as standard and inevitably it's seen as superior. So all of that ties back in if you look at the black church tradition, 
there's always been this integration of Jesus and justice because it was a matter of survival. You couldn't go to church and not talk about racial oppression because your congregation, your people were experiencing it every single day. It was relevant, it was lived, it was people suffering. So, so, so you brought the gospel to bear. You, you said there is actually good news for those who suffer under racial oppression and all kinds of injustices. But here's the thing. When we ask those questions, isn't that a social justice issue? Just stick to the gospel. We haven't learned from the black church. Wow. We haven't learned really from any marginalized Christian communities globally when that is the question because we assume that the priorities set by this one group of believers is normative and standard for everyone else. And that when I look at other traditions and their context and the questions they ask of God and what's good news from the eternal word in their particular situation, I don't see it as valid. I don't see it as authoritative. I don't sit under at the feet of other people who are not like me. Is any of that making sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Let me ask you anything. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna keep saying that, you know, to get the brand in there. Um, let me ask you then, uh, there is this um, interesting dynamic that's happening amongst particularly the, 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 the white church, and that is, um, you know, here we are celebrating Black History Month, which is so important. But of course, as I sit here, my passion is if this is a Black History Month, this is isolated to February, again, we have a bigger problem on our hands. <laughs> now, we're going to take the advantage and opportunity to thank God for Black History Month instituted in the United States of America for us to discuss this incredible opportunity we have to live out the gospel in a much more legitimate, authentic way. But there is this... Um, there's this trend that you're well aware of, but I'll just, I'll, I'll ask it in a question. And that is in, in, in the white church, because it is not the experience of a white believer or a white Christian in this country, there is this um, trend that happens every time. And frankly, it's happening again. Mm. And that is when it is obvious um, in the moments of Ahmed Arbery, uh, obvious in other instances we've watched via technology and here comes another wave of, up, of a, upheaval that we hope is not a moment in a movement. Yeah. But invariably, white Christians particularly, it's like, okay, we'll give, we'll post, back to our regularly scheduled program. Right, right, right. What would you say to that trend that keeps repeating itself over and over and over? And I'll take it one step further multicultural mm. was a buzz. 1992, mm -hmm. my dad started this church. Mm -hmm. and, and our tagline is we are a multicultural church, mm -hmm. right? This was 1992. My dad's like, we're going to have a church that looks like heaven. We're going to be the place. And yet here we are in 2022. And I feel like we haven't progressed yeah. that much. Yeah, yeah. Why and what do we do? Mm -hmm. So there's a couple different questions yeah, in yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> Let me answer the address the first one, it, which is you know, um, it's really a question of, of of what does it mean to be an ally. And actually that word in sort of the activist community has taken on a negative connotation for the exact reasons that you mentioned. It's sort of fair weather kind of a thing. You know, when it's in the headlines, when it's in the news, when it's in style, we'll come alongside the oppressed and we will advocate for them. But 
It's not true solidarity. Solidarity is fellowship in sufferings. Wow. Solidarity wow. sticks with it when it's not convenient and sticks with it when you don't have to. So when you're in a privileged position in society, you've got wealth or you're male in a sexist society or you're white in a white supremacist society, when you've got those privileges, you actually don't have to come alongside the oppressed because your quality of life, earthly speaking, isn't going to be that affected. So one of the things I talk about in um, my books is uh, the difference between a light switch and a smoke alarm. So for people of privilege, when there's an injustice, they may get activated. They may flip on the light switch, right? But then as soon as it gets tiresome or tedious or hard or costly, flick off the light switch again. It's, it, it's on and off with the tides, right? A smoke alarm is always on. For people who are oppressed, the smoke alarm is always on. They have to be constantly vigilant for injustice and oppression because at any time where there's smoke, there's fire. It could burn them. And so what does it look like for people of privilege to keep the light switch on and to understand other people don't have the option of turning off the smoke alarm? And so how can I be more like that smoke? Even if I'm not in the same position demographically or whatever it is, I can still deliberately come alongside those who are um, experiencing injustice. So I, I, I think a lot of soul searching has to be done to say, am I really in this for the long haul? Am I in this for transformation? Or am I in this to look good, to appear on the right side of justice, whatever it might be? Yeah. It's, that, that metaphor is so beautiful because the light switch and the smoke detector uh, frankly, there's only one of those metaphors that fits um, the Bible teachings of Jesus. Mm. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. You sure did. <laughs> to treat my brother, that your pain as if it was my pain, because guess what? It is. Mm -hmm. We are all interconnected. Mm. And to devalue you is to devalue me. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of a smoke detector and a light switch, can you just take a little bit moment since I can ask you anything? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are the other distinctions between being a light switch? And I, I just is so, and this is what you do through your works and your videos and your books is, is these moments like, how can I, church home doesn't want to be a light switch. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. as a white male, do not want to be a light switch. I want to be a smoke detector. Yeah. How do you become, you've already kind of alluded to and spoken to, how do you become, first of all, how do you know you're a light switch? <laughs> and then how do you become a smoke detector? Very good. I mean, you know you're a light switch when, when life is comfortable and you don't have to sacrifice for the sake of other people, right? Like your, your life isn't interrupted by injustice. It's light switch, you know? You have certain kinds of, and, and we all do in various ways, right? So part of it is just sort of recognizing the advantages that you have that others may not. Um, it, it, as far as like becoming more like that, that smoke detector, I, 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 I think about the framework that I use in my book, How to Fight Racism, The Arc of Racial Justice. Yeah. That's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. So if we want to be, you know, 
you can't actually switch, I don't think, in certain, you know, your certain forms of privileges, you tend not to be able to switch from a light switch to a smoke detector, unless there's extreme cases, like you, you geographically move and you're in that situation, or the tides of society change and you're now in a disadvantaged um, position or whatnot. But there are ways that you can sort of deliberately keep that light switch on. One, let's not have a superficial knowledge about injustice. Right, because you read one article or watched one YouTube video, you think you're an expert or you know all there is to know. No, like there are people who dedicate their lives to studying one specific issue like sentencing and incarceration or like multicultural churches or whatever it might be. There is so much to know. So we have to be proactive about constantly building our knowledge. Whoa. That's doing things like, you know, watching this Ask Me Anything, <laughs> right? This is a good first step, encouragement. Right. Um, it's, 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 it's also like, 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 who are the voices in your life? both on a broader basis, like social media or who you listen to through a screen, but also in your local life that you're learning from. And if it's not like this diverse cast of characters or people who are knowledgeable about issues, you, 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 you might be intentional about that. That gets into the next aspect, relationships, right? Like, the, here's the irony. Um, there's a book, Divided by Faith, by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. It's a sociological take on why our churches are divided by race. Why 11 o'clock a.m. is the most segregated hour in America, right, as the saying goes. And, and one of the things they say is white evangelicals in particular are hyper-individualistic, and that's how they understand race. It's, it's one to one, you know, it's one person not liking another. And so the solution is, well, let's all get together and be friendly, right? And that's not wrong. That's not bad. Keep doing that. But there's more to it. Yeah. There's the systemic, there's the institutional, there's the frameworks that set up inequality. The irony is this, the way individualistic people become aware of systemic issues and, 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 and know that it's real is through individual relationships. So it's that church couple that shared this black church sharing about the reality of their family with this white family. And then it's like the light bulb goes on. Oh, well now this person who's sitting across from me, who has a name, whose story I know is telling me this is real, now I can latch on to that a little bit more. So those relationships are critical for developing solidarity. And the last thing is commitment, which is not just staying the course, it's, it's commitment to changing the laws, the policies, the systems, the institutions that create and perpetuate racial inequality, which is the rub for a lot of people. There's no such thing as systemic racism and, and all of this stuff, but um, you know, our, our, our society was deliberately set up to give certain advantages to one group of people and disadvantages to others. So what are we doing about that? And again, you know, saying this, I know Emmanuel Acho and I said the same thing. It's just, this is not an opinion to be debated. This go. is a historical fact. Yes. And as our Present resident reality. historian here at Church Home, you that is an it's an actual proven scientific statistical fact. This system is in place, correct? Yeah, it's demonstrable in all kinds of ways. One of the um, examples I uh, look at is. Um, Black women die in maternity-related deaths at three times the rate of white women. Why is that? Because black women don't care about being pregnant because they don't take good, no, it's because they, had, they have a lack of access to medical care. You can look at the lifespan of people and it gets divided by race and it diminishes 
by race if you are a person of color. Why is that? Because black people don't care of them, take care of themselves? No, we don't have access, the same access to the financial resources, the health or medical resources. If you look at the racial wealth gap, white, the median uh, white family has 10 times the wealth of median black family. Is that because black people don't know what to do with money and white people are just really gifted by God to, to know? What to, no, it's because of systemic and institutional issues that have prevented the accumulation of certain kinds of wealth among certain populations. Like, like it, it's not a debate. Like, the data is there. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Wow. This is Ask Me Anything, right? I think it is. Okay, you may all have right. That then I, um, there are uh, so many things we pick up um, in our journey, particularly in this country, and, and bear with us as we talk in a lot of ways about the United States of America and using that at least as a case study for really for the world. Mm -hmm. But you look at Hollywood, you look at athletics, you look at art, um, you look at all the many expressions that, that we admire and we watch architecture. Um, and there are stereotypes, deep, deep stereotypes. As a result, um, what would you say to the white person who's like, all right, please don't tell anyone, but when I get around a black or brown person, what inundates my brain is these stereotypes. Mm. Um, I was watching a, a show that, that intentionally had the writers are brilliant and they write in a character who's a white dad who married a black woman and they had uh, a boy and uh, he's now grown up and they're in this car and um, they're driving down the street and here's the white dad um, just through what he's, all the stereotypes, telling his son what he can be. Mm. He also has a white son from another marriage. Mm. And they kind of, there's this scenario and he tells his son like, you, you could be a basketball player. <laughs> you could be, and he starts going down the stereotypes. And, and, and his black son stops the car and is like, dad, get out of the car. You're not gonna respect me. He's like, what are you talking about? I, wow. I was just trying to tell you what you could be. Yeah. And, as a result, these stereotypes are so steeped in our culture that the, the white feeling sometimes is like, well, I just feel uncomfortable and I can't move past these feelings. So I'm going to, we justify it with all kinds of stuff that's not true. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that person who's watching this right now going, well, I, I just feel uncomfortable and I don't really know how, and I think the stats are there. And so like, I just feel uncomfortable. So I'm not gonna, what would you say to that? I know I'm getting really, yeah. really candid. I mean, listen, the longer I do this work, the less I'm concerned about sentiment and the more I'm concerned about action. And also just wow. like, like wow. thinking about it as human beings, if we're honest, we think, we assume that right thinking leads to right doing or that our thinking shapes our doing. When a lot of times it's the reverse, that the doing shapes our believing. So let's apply this to justice, right? Wow. I'm, I'm with you and I'm loving this. I'm, I'm not, I'm not like, con I, I, I don't want to spend all this time trying to fix the ideas, rewire the thinking. The stereotypes. Right. I want you to get in and do it. Come serve with me. Come meet this person. Come interact with this community. 
move where you live or stay where you live, whatever the case might be. Then you tell me, this is how it worked in my life. I'm not, like, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't grow up saying, I, I, I want to dedicate my life to racial justice. I don't know what I wanted to dedicate my life to. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. So, yeah, Pastor Judah, if you have that prophetic word, <laughs> let me know. Let me know. I stumbled into this thing by doing. So right out of college, I became a teacher in the fourth poorest county in the entire country. My town is 75% black. Over 40% of people live below the poverty line, which is double the state average, which is higher than the national average. It's in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side. It's literally cotton country. You come in the late summer, early fall, cotton is blooming. It's this haunting picture because it's so beautiful and so unique. I had never seen cotton actually blooming growing up. I'm assuming most of us haven't. And when you see these acres and acres of cotton fields, you're like, ah, and then you remember <laughs> enslaved people picked the cotton. After that, sharecroppers picked the cotton. My, my, my wife's grandmother still has scars on her hand from picking cotton as a sharecropper. Um, it's that reality, and it's the reality of the poverty in my school, which was 98% black, and all of the issues that come along with it, over-incarceration, um, food deserts, disinvestment in public education, came walking into my classroom on two feet every day. And when you're in that proximity, I would call it a priestly proximity, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the shepherd needs to be near the sheep. Um, it shapes your beliefs. It shapes your thinking. It shapes what I believe about racial capitalism and poverty. It shapes what I think about history. It shapes what I think about this nation's landscape, racially speaking. So maybe we don't need to spend all this time at the you know, coffee shop trying to get people's thinking right, maybe we need to get moving. And in the doing, we'll change our believing. And, and, and that is one of the most invigorating responses and statements that I've heard in a long time around justice. Be, because the reality is if we can kind of pan the camera back for a moment, big picture of God and life, if the prerequisite for going with God or partnering with him in any pocket or place on earth is to understand it all mm -hmm. or, or, or know it all or see it all right, well, then none of us are qualified. Right, right. So what you're saying is the unqualified, the steeped in stereotypes, the operative word is not um, just think, it's go. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Not just think, it's go. Oh. And let me relieve some of the pressure, yeah. let some of the air out of the balloon. Yeah. You're going to mess up. You're going to mess up. Real simple example, when I became a teacher, this is in the deep south, so there's the, you know, all these customs and whatnot. It's a culture shock to me coming from Midwest near Chicago. Um, I would call parents by their first name. Like we were both adults and, you know, they'd introduce themselves with their first name and, and I'd call them by their first name. And this older teacher, Betty Sue Sanders, had 30 plus years experience already by the time I'm in my first year. She pulls me aside and said, don't you do that. You say miss, Mrs., mister. You say sir, you say ma'am. Because they actually are doing that to see what you'll say. 
because they know the custom and it's a sign of respect. And it's different in every culture. This is very specific, yeah. right? But it was a great example of, I'm a fish out of water. I don't, I'm, I'm trying to do good, but I'm gonna stumble on the way. But if you have those mentors and if you're willing to say, all right, I didn't get it this time, I'm gonna do better next time, I'm, I'm gonna learn from it. That's when you build capacity. Like it's a journey, I keep saying, it's a journey. And if you're at the beginning of the journey, you're going to expect to get confused and turn around and stumble. But the longer you stay on the journey, the better you're going to. It's like anything. Why do we categorize justice in just this totally different category of life? If I want to become a better runner, if I want to become uh, learn code for computer programming, if I want to do anything, I recognize there's going to be a process of capacity building. It's the same with justice. It's the same with advocacy. Like, ah. Oh, the virtue we need to cultivate, I think, more than any other is courage. Wow. When it boils down to it, all, so much of this work is the courage it takes to do it and to stay in it. And if we could just look to Jesus for courage, this is why it goes, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but listen, no, no, rambling. Joshua chapter one, the first nine verses just rock me. Three times in those verses, God says, be strong, and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous, right? And this is Joshua taking over for Moses. How do you follow Moses, right, as a leader? And, 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 and God is reassuring him. But here's the beautiful part. God doesn't just say, like, clench your fists, grit your teeth, and grunt it out and be strong and courageous. Right. Verse 9, God attaches that to a promise. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you wherever you go. That's what, that's what's, I'm addicted to Jesus. Yes, sir. As I pursue justice, I feel like I get more of Jesus. So for people who call on the name of Christ, people who claim the name Christian, if you want more of Jesus, you follow in his footsteps, which is the path of suffering and persecution. And don't get me wrong, I, I live a very blessed life, but there are blows that come, That's right. as you know as you've taken steps at church home. But here's the thing that keeps us going. I get a clearer picture of Jesus when, we, when I do that. It's like, it's overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, it's overwhelming. And once you like really have that, that close personal incarnational experience with Jesus, you can't, nothing else satisfies like that. No. Like, and and this, is what, this is my passion for people to get involved in this work. I want you to know the joy of knowing Jesus more, more. I'm just telling you, there's a, there's, a, there's a way of knowing and relating to God that you can't access unless you follow the path of the cross. And in the US and so many countries, wow. it's following the path of comfort. And that just ain't it. <sighs> I'm, I live this imperfectly, I promise you, I do. But that's all I got is, is, is just the little no, bit of I, truth Jesus yeah, has showed me. That's right. And I, I must admit, it means the world to me and it, and it explodes in my soul that um, if, if this Jesus that we're following is always taking us to places we've been hmm. and places we know and people we've seen, and places where we can run our mouth and be the expert and never be challenged or uncomfortable. Maybe, just maybe, we're not following Jesus. Mm. We're following a construct of our own making. And um, 
There is no life with Jesus without troublesome, wonderful days where you take those moments and you go, I don't know anything and I don't know what's happening. And I hope, and this is so un-American to say, <laughs> but I hope that we welcome that unknown wild adventure in front of us. Yeah, that yeah. is the getting to know our neighbor and caring one for another. And it's interesting because um, none of us gets to be the expert. Mm. We all are learning collectively with yes. each other. Yes. yes. And um, ultimately, y'all have to. We all have to stop and go. Okay, Jesus, we're all down here, your kids. I'm trying to make sense of all this, um, as opposed to knowing all of the answers. Or do you feel this way? And I promise I'm done. I promise I've asked you anything. <laughs> um, do you feel like you you know less? today than you've ever known before about God oftentimes? I don't even know what I to do think, with that question or what I'm getting at. Well, I'm going to give you a, a weird answer, I think. I, I think I'm more confident about the little I do know. I love that. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, I hope it's obvious that the longer you walk with God and the more you study God's word and the, and the depths and the riches and the beauty of like it's incomprehensible. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you recognize God's infiniteness and your finiteness. But I think in that process as well, you get more certain about the little bit of truth you can grasp. Mm. So I'm more confident and bold than ever on these issues of justice and advocacy. Yes. And I'm learning every day more and yes. more and more, right? But, but, but I am convinced and persuaded in the Lord that this is a righteous thing to do in our day and age, right? Wow. And so I can be bold with that in whatever venue, in whatever setting. And, and, and so I think maybe that's part of the process, right? Yes, we, we, we realize how little we know, yeah. but the truth God has given us is enough to do the work that God has set for us to do yes. and to do it boldly. And so... That's how I feel at this moment. Ask me tomorrow, it might be different. I'm like, I don't know anything. Um, and that's probably good to wrestle <laughs> between that. But yeah, <laughs> like, you know, we do know some things is yes. all I'm saying. Yes. And it's like the more we know, the more we're aware of, 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 of the depths of that we do not know. That's right. And, and that's to right. me, that brings such a sobriety sure. and, and, and such a, a posture of humility, which the work of justice um, seems to almost cry out and require a posture of humility Absolutely. where we come and we honor one another at this beautiful table. And um, I just want to say, Dr. Tisby, that it is uh, it's such a privilege to um, have access to the gifts that God's given you, to the um, incredible resource that you are and the, the time, the effort that you have given not just to research and study, and I want church home to hear this, but the time and the effort you've given to the doing and the going. Mm. And it's, it's, it's rare to find a man or a woman who um, is a convergence within themselves of study, research, and going and doing. Mm. But when you do, you find, a, you find a gift like gold. 
And uh, I, I want you to know the gift that you are to the church, the gift that you are to this country mm. and around the world. And I know this will not be the last time because it just can't be that we talk <laughs> and minister together. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I am so, so excited about the future together and walking with you and growing with you. And just know, please, you have caused so much growth already within mm. our community Praise that God. I think will have global impact. And uh, so thank you for that. We love you. And uh, this is Ask Me Anything here at Church Home. And there are more episodes uh, and installments to come. Love you, church.